Welcome to another episode of Ragcast Outdoors. This is going to be a two-part episode, so this week you get to hear part one with Tom Schneider. Tom is the guy who created the YouTube channel Stuck in the Rut TV, so if you haven't been out there to check that out, go check it out now and subscribe. He is what we would consider an expert wolf hunter. And after our episode about wolves and the introduction of wolves into Colorado, David thought it'd be really good to connect with Tom because he knew Tom from doing shows on the road. Tom tells us a little bit about wolf hunting, what all it entails, how difficult it is, and gives us just some insight as to what the wolf introduction was like up in the state of Idaho. So here we go. Part one, wolf hunting with Tom Snyder. We hope you enjoy this episode of the podcast. Fish on. Hey, Radcast is on. And welcome to the show, Mr. Jim Zumbo. Gentlemen, I am pleased to be here, and I use that term loosely when I say gentlemen. (laughs) (laughs) Al Winder. Just want to welcome you to the show. Thanks for uh, taking time out of your busy schedule to hang out with us on a podcast for a little bit. Hey, I'm looking forward to it. There's nothing makes me happier than a cold in Minnesota. If I can't be out fishing, I should be talking about fishing. (laughs) (laughs) Hailing from Wisconsin, Jana Waller. Thank you so much for having me. It's Redcast. Hunting, fishing, and everything in between. Powered by Bow Spider. Brought to you by PK Lures and High Mountain Seasonings. And now, here's your hosts, Patrick Edwards and David Merrill. Well, hello and welcome everybody to Radcast Outdoors. I'm David Merrill, and for once, we have Patrick joining us from the road. This is a little change of roles here, sir. Yeah, well, usually when I'm on the road, I can't join, but... I have the stuff to do it now, so yeah, you have to put up with me for a little while. Well, no, we're certainly glad that you could join up, and we're getting into dead middle of ice fishing season, and I'm starting trade show season, which is a fun time of year. I get to travel the country and go meet everybody face-to-face and shake some hands, so definitely, if, if I'm not in the studio, Patrick will be, but when I'm in the studio, Patrick will be out. That's the way it's going to work. So, well, everybody, I'm glad you're back for another episode. Obviously, we have three really cool sponsors. Check them out. Go use their gear. People have asked me all the time, that do you guys really use that or are you just promoting it? And I'll tell you, I use their products before, after, and during, and I will continue to do so. Why? Because I truly believe in in not only the products, but the people that stand behind those products. So shout out to PK, High Mountain, and Bow Spider. So today, I'm pretty excited. We, we have a guest here. He's been back and forth. We've talked a little bit. I met, met this gentleman this summer, and he's got a really interesting background. I think he's got some knowledge that's going to be really exciting to share. Tom Snyder is the curator owner of Stuck in the Rut, which is a YouTube, Instagram um, platform. So Tom grew up hunting, fishing like we all did, and he's turned into some pretty good success here lately. And I've spent some time watching some of his YouTube videos. He's hunted all over the North American continent, taken animals, and his passion runs as deep as Patrick is mine. So Tom, welcome to the show. Hey guys, thank you for having me. I'm really excited. This is something I always look forward to is talking about what I love to do, I guess you could say. So I appreciate talking to people that share the same viewpoints as I do. And so, yeah. So right off the bat, how'd you get started in the outdoors? Take us all the way back to the beginning. All right. Well, like to my great, great grandfather, (laughs) my great grandfather, he did move to Idaho several, several years ago. 
and pretty much bought a bunch of land and which as we know back then was super dirt cheap and <laughs> he had a nice little place he lived out here farmed a lot and then eventually my mom came about and my dad was a logger in the area and he met my mom um, but my dad was very a very passionate hunter and talking to him he always has those stories when Archery season first came about for elk back in the 1990s. He says there was hardly anybody in the woods and there was just a lot of elk to hunt. And I always loved the stories. And I think what's special though, too, even though I look young and I am young, I got to experience what I thought. I never thought I would say this, but I got to experience the old days a little bit in my teens and really good hunting. And our family has pulled a lot of big animals off the mountain. So between elk, mule deer, moose, and a lot of other critters, we are very fortunate to do that. And if my dad wasn't hunting or he was working, and so we've all of our family members have become or pretty much like my dad in that way, where we're hardworking and we love the hunt. And as a teenager, I always just felt like I was living a dream because I I worked hard even in my teens, but I was still under my parents' house. So I was able to make enough money to hunt. And I just pretty much bounced back and forth like that quite a bit. And it wasn't until after high school and I had to live on my own. I'm like, well, how do I create that scenario for myself again, right? Like, how do I allow myself to continue to hunt and hunt the way I was as a teen? And so what I, what I did and hopefully I'm not, if you, if you need to say something, you can stop me. I created a financial goal for myself to, to have everything paid for. And the one thing I realized is rent is expensive and so is owning a vehicle. And so I busted my butt between logging, doing construction and working in the oil field in my twenties. I've just, I saved up, accumulated a lot of money. And I built a house in my 30s, and now I could comfortably say I have a house paid for and all my vehicles paid for. And I make a very, I, now just a very comfortable living, and I can just simply take off the fall to hunt and not worry about very high expenses. So that was one of my biggest goals, is I wanted to live that dream of just not having a lot of expenses. A lot of people's dreams is to become rich. That wasn't my dream. My dream was just to knock out the normal American or daily American expenses that most people have and beat the system and just be able to hunt, take off, like I said, as much time as I'd like. And that's what I do. And so very fortunate where we live. Of course, being in Idaho, there's a lot of opportunity. So, Well, a, uh, an avid listener told me years and years ago, an avid listener of this podcast, big house, hunt a little, little house, hunt a lot. And so I live in a very yeah. humble, meager house as well, so that I can yeah. go mind do... The, mind the box, mind the box, but it works, so... <laughs> well, that's that's cool that dad was getting you involved before you really even realized what you were doing. And you mentioned a little bit about the good old days, the heydays, and I started late 90s with archery hunting, but... We're closer to 2050 than we are 1990 at this point, and urbanization has changed the landscape, and that's some of the things I want to get into today on hunting. I can remember coming to Idaho 
2009, 2010, and 2011. And during archery season, you could go to the gas station and pick up an additional elk tag over the counter as a non-resident. It's been three years since I've got an elk tag in Idaho because the way they've changed it. I even sent a buddy to Idaho to stand in line and he was there to buy tags for three people and he got the first tag bought. And by the time he turned around by the second, they were sold out. So it's unfortunate to see the changes, but there are some changes out there for the good. And and some of what I want to get into today is specifically wolves here not very long ago you couldn't hunt a wolf you couldn't harvest a wolf you couldn't target a wolf and you've here in the last few years built a name around specifically hunting wolves you're obviously that's not your only trick or hat you've done moose to caribou to elk to to all those species but i really wanted to pick your brain specifically some topics about how to be a wolf hunter how to be a better wolf hunter how do wolves interact in the landscape and one of the questions i want to get into later in the podcast is have you seen a difference hunting ungulates in areas where the large carnivores are intact i.e grizzly bears mountain lions wolves versus hunting somewhere where there isn't grizzly bears and and wolves so let's start off what are some key differences you've seen growing up in your state pre and post wolf introduction yeah and so before before the wolf so just to explain a little bit what like a what a year would look like for me in my teens. So September, the the technique that everybody would do to to elk hunt was bugling off the road, right? So you'd go on a drainage, bugle off the road, get a bull bugling, then we get ready, drop off in the drainage, chase the elk around. And you still had to cover miles, but to get at least a bull located was not too big of a deal. Um we never had an overgrazing issue. We've always had a lot of habitat for elk and a lot of habitat for wildlife. I felt like the best thing that Idaho did during that time in the late 1990s to the early 2000s is they would, they had a way of maximizing, like our mountains were maximized with wildlife populations, I guess you could say. I don't feel like we had an overpopulation, but we had a healthy number of wildlife and a lot of it had to do with logging, where people first have the idea that logging is bad for the environment. What it's done to us, where it's actually created habitat. It wasn't until the 1950s, and some of these old timers I talked to this day, they said the elk never even moved into our units until the logging started because there was just no habitat for elk and no habitat for mule deer or even moose. So it wasn't really until the 1950s to where actually wildlife numbers started to increase and expand because the the timber gets so thick here where I live where it almost creates a canopy and prevents that brush from growing. And and so with cutting that cutting that timber, that brush allows to grow. You got a lot of browse. And so talking about habitat, that actually really helped a lot. And there used and back in the nineteen nineties where I'd say our highest elk population was There was 18 mills running in our area, 18 mills. And and so my dad being a logger and pretty much most of my family, my grandpa, he was was hauling logs off the mountain. Some of these old roads are all grown up with trees and stuff. I'll walk them like I remember my grandpa hauled logs off that road. And it's crazy to see because they're just vertical. I'm like, I can't believe he hauled the log truck off that road. That's insane. But even in the 2000s, we had mountain lions and we did have grizzlies, 
But those are still newer topics where people are like, oh, the grizzlies are so bad here. I'm seeing a truck every time I'm out in the woods. But it started to increase to the point where rather than seeing a track of a grizzly in the woods about every other time, you're actually seeing a grizzly in the woods about every other time you're out in the woods. It was starting to get a little bit nerve-wracking. Multiple times elk hunting, we have actually have called in grizzlies by accident, cow calling. I had one that came in 13 yards, and I just had to stop calling and let it walk off. That was a little hair-raising. My dad, it was my dad, my little brother, they had one come charging in at a cattle call and it stopped, put on the brakes and they first, I'm glad they didn't shoot because they thought it was a black bear at first. It, it just, when they videoed it and everything, and I even posted that video online, I kid you not, 80% of the people said black bear shoot it. Just from the first, first like 10 seconds of the video, it looks like a big black bear. And, but then when he starts to turn and starts to run off, you start seeing that hump, you start seeing those long claws and they're just like, wait, that's, it just doesn't look like a black bear. And they had, the one thing you learn here is you pack heat, right? Even if you're archery hunting, you have a pistol. I don't trust pepper spray. (laughs) I trust a a rifle, a bullet a little bit more. And so we've always packed heat. That's probably the biggest thing we do. But the reality was, although we had grizzlies and mountain lions, we, we still had wildlife, right? We still had elk. We still had deer. And, and sure, predator management is important, right? And we're very, and we were always big into it. We understand that black bears can knock a lot of calves down in the spring, especially when they're fresh out of the den. Mountain lions, man, it irritates me when I have a good group of mealy bucks that are wintering in a wintering range and I want to find their sheds. And I'm like, and there's a mountain lion just living in there. I'm like, I don't care how big that lion is. I'm going to get that lion killed. So I'll borrow some hounds. I've in, in the past, I've made some hound hunters mad because they like to let them grow and get big. But I'm like, if I have a mountain lion messing with a small group of muleys in a drainage, I want to take care of that lion and get it out of there. So in, in my brain and just growing up, predator management has been engraved into my head. And it wasn't until about 2007 is when I first saw my first wolf in our area. We really didn't even see a wolf truck until then. It was between 2006, 2007. It was me older season. Travis and I were hunting area. We've always hunted. But drainage where we would, if you sat there in this one particular spot and if you sat there for a full day, you'd count between 12 to 15 bucks. Just passing through looking for does. This one particular day, nothing. And I, we didn't know why. And I was probably like, I'm not going to do the math right now, but I, like I said, I was in my teens and my brother and I were sitting there and we're like, what? There's nothing in this drainage. What's going on? And so we decided just as stupid teenagers are, let's do a pop shot across the canyon and see if we can get stuff moving. There's a bunch of little timber patches, right? We shoot across the canyon and this black wolf just bolts out of the timber and starts running down the mountain. And that was my first, the first thing I ever thought in my mind with, with the first wolf I ever saw was, holy crap, that was big. I never realized the true size of a wolf until then. I am looking at this wolf running down the mountain at 400 yards. And the, and the body of this wolf is bigger than any deer that I've ever seen. I'm just like blown away at the size of what these wolves are. But you think of, a, I think previously we thought a wolf was about the size, maybe of a little bigger than a coyote. It's a night and day difference. There's, there's no comparison. And after that day, We've never had a good day hunting mule there and there until more recently, until 
we started getting the numbers under control. But it was it was almost like a night and day difference. When the wolf pack moved in there, we just stopped. I don't want to say we stopped seeing deer, but I wasn't seeing the buzz, dozen bucks a day. It was like you'd go in there for two or three days and you'd see maybe two to three deer. That's it. And it was, it was not, it, it wasn't something that happened long-term. Like if a mountain lion population grows, you'll notice how a mountain lion or black bears, if their populations grow, you'll start seeing animal numbers drop. It, it was almost immediate. Like you had to put on a blindfold not to see it. So that was my first wolf experience. I was going to say, Tom, the first wolf I ever saw was one that got hit on the highway. This was back in the 90s, right after Raider. Oh, really? And I was blown away at the size of the paw. It was just absolutely humongous. And I've, I've had big dogs, like my family. We've had St. Bernard's and stuff. Is every bit, every bit as big as a St. Bernard. They are gigantic yeah. animals. And people don't appreciate that. Because if you watch some of these videos, like out of Yellowstone, you'll see a grizzly bear on a kill, right? And then the wolves start coming in and you see them circling around doing their thing and starting to get after each other over the food. And the grizzly bear isn't that much bigger than the wolf. Like you look at it and you look stature wise and you're like, dang, they're, you're right. they're really tall. You know like back I mean? to back, sure, weight wise, sure. But like back yeah. to back. Yeah, stature wise, they're really close. And you're like, dang, that is a big animal. But I don't think a lot of people understand just how massive a, a full-grown adult male wolf is they are huge yeah so sticking with the ungulate theme for a second is there a technique you've found that works or a tip or a trick that is in hunting an area that has wolves for ungulates right say is there something you yeah. found i.e here where we hunt i'm pretty close to the park and the ungulates are are somewhat stable even though those large carnivores are intact but I'll tell you, if, if wolves come through and howl in our camp, the elk shut up for three to five days. And we've found that it's better to be less vocal and, and be better at just sneaking in wallows and, and not trying to attract attention to those wolves or grizzly bears. Because you'll have a drainage that has three to five bulls just going off all night. The wolves howl. And for days, I, I think those elk just go find hidey holes. So is there a tip or trick out there that you might implement in a situation where you're hunting a drainage that has wolves in it yeah so the one so a couple of things so we we, a little bit of evolution of of wolves have created is uh, the first thing i've seen bulls go to are the cliffs and at least in our area what i've noticed like elk without wolf pressure they love meadows elk love those those deep dark holes on the north facing slopes that changed with the wolf Wolves also love those areas. Wolves, they're, they kill really easy in that, in that thick stuff. And so what we have seen our wolves are, or the elk have actually utilized the openings more, actually. So that was probably one of the first things we saw where the, the elk would actually stay in the cliffs. And I was in 20, when was it? 2013, as that we were building it, I was a big mature bull elk that I ended up archery. And as we were building that bull elk, a mountain goat walked past me. And like, why am I hunting elk in the cliffs? Why am I beagling elk in the cliffs? Why not in the hole where those wallows are and stuff? And the wolves just found out that they're just keen and killing in there. And so that was a little bit of the evolution that I saw. Also, too, 
the other thing we noticed is in some of the areas closer to, to human activity, it seems that the elk would rather, they prefer archery pressure than wolf pressure. And so there was this weird dynamic where in the past, because we had horses and mules, so we pack in the backcountry. It used to be the farther we get back, the, the less, less people, more elk. And we were having a heyday. That's what we loved. Like, I'm willing to hike, and most people aren't. And now it was the opposite, where the farther you go back, the less elk tracks you'd see and the more wolf tracks you'd see. And so there was this weird dynamic where almost, in a sense, the majority of the elk we were hunting were within two miles from the main roads. Those were the herds. And honestly, the areas with the most hunting pressure seemed to hold the bigger bulls. It's just like the bigger bulls would wise up to the archery hunters. They wouldn't really come in the calls. But they know they'd rather be there than being around wolves. <laughs> and that's what we were seeing. I could still drop a pin and tell you guys, this summer, 15 miles go back here and find me an elk. I could do that this summer and you won't find an elk there. But you, what you will find, you will find wolves. And that's, and so that's, it's very unfortunate that happened, but the way we were adapting. So going back to your question, another thing we would do is we were actually just staying ahead of the curve. And so on the, the east side of our units, that's where wolves hit first. And that area, it got wiped out within two years span. And after that, it slowly moved all the way to the west side of our unit. But what we would do is we just started exploring more country that we haven't normally hunted before. And so we were getting another elk and we just stayed ahead of the wolves in a sense. And we that got us by for about seven years, but until the wolves completely engulfed this unit along with the rest of Idaho. And finally, I was traveling and trying to get away from them. You were talking to about elk shutting up. That happened to me in a day where I archered three wolves. I, I told you, I remember I told you that story. Yeah, go, let's, let's, let's go ahead and it's, it's a great time because that, that story still turns, turns goose up. So you're, you're out archery elk hunting and, and continue that story. Yeah. yeah, and so I, this was a time I still didn't quite like this. So season was available, right, for hunters. And so in 2011, season was open. At this point, I was like, I got to kill my first wolf. So First thing I do, it was a piece of cake. I tell you what, like I grabbed a wolf howler and I called in two wolves immediately and shot my first wolf. I shot a beautiful gray wolf, wounded a black one, and the black one ran off in the timber. I tracked it away, just couldn't find it. I'm like, oh, well, I got this gray one down. And I was like, oh, wolf hunt's a piece of cake. So I took the hide in. I was like, I'll just sell it and I'll, I'll kill more. But little did I know how quickly wolves wise up hunting pressure and that was probably one of the biggest learning curves i ever had to go through because and then that rest that fast rest of that year i couldn't kill a wolf i was like i tried every trick in the book there was actually there wasn't even a book what am i even saying there wasn't a book about how to hunt wolves so i was like coming up with my own ideas we're passing ideas along with each other another older gentleman who's retired him and i would both pass ideas to each other and he got more into the trapping side just because he's older. And so him and I both were hunting the same areas. He was trapping, I was hunting, but we were both working on the same areas. And I won't give, he's, he's a low-key low type guy, so I won't give his name. 
but him and I both gained an obsession in trying to manage these wolves. And well, anyways, it was a couple years after that, I just started to surrender to it. I'm like, you gosh, they're just so hard to hunt. So I surrendered, didn't hunt them. And this, you're not even going to believe when I say this, but I spent 18 days in archery season without an elk beagle. And I was running ridge top to ridge top. I'm like, this is getting ridiculous. And this was a point where it just felt like all hope was lost. And I got into an area where we used to, it's, it's an area toward the end of September. Some big bulls will typically pull in with cows and we've caught some pretty good. And to explain our quality of elk, I'm trying to not bump bounce everywhere. Our elk quality, like a big bull pretty much maxes out between 340, 350, even sometimes 320. Like they just, they about, they're like these big heavy timber bulls and they, that's about where they'll max out at. And I was hunting that area and I came across some elk tracks fresh. You can smell the urine. End of September, I throw a bugle, nothing, not a single bugle. I'm like, that is so weird. Like, I don't care if this bull is a runner or not. He would have answered that call. They're like, well, I'll go to the wallow where I used to catch. And so I started sidehilling through this wallow. And do you ever have that, like, I don't know if you call it the sixth sense? Hair on your, like, your, your spider sense. Not, yeah, the spider. Uh, I, uh, I get it. The spider <laughs> sense. The, <laughs> the tingle, the hair on the back of your neck stands up. Something's just not quite right. A couple times I've had it happen That's to me. That's the feeling I got. And it was like, something's not right here. It was almost a eerie feeling. Like, like, yeah, I was feeling it. And it was almost too quiet. It's like, there's a peaceful quiet. This was not a peaceful quiet. Like no bird chirping, no squirrel, no bird, no squirrels. Just like so dead quiet. And I had this like weird intuition to look at. And I looked and there, and as I, and as I was, I was just cow calling, moving through the trees quietly, trying to cover my sound. Well, what that did is it sparked a wolf pack and uh, I had a wolf trotting in at me very close range. And I, I had every, it took everything in my power to just have the self-control just to like, just knock the arrow, just pull back. And he was trotting and he wasn't, I felt he wasn't going to attack me. That's not the feeling I got from the situation, but it made me nervous. I had a full grown wolf trotting in at me under 20 yards. And by the time I had my bow pulled back, he was eight. And I just, I, I, and the part that I don't quite remember just because it was such in the moment, I don't remember if he was still running or if he, I think he, if I remember, I just slightly started to stop just because it was almost like that. This doesn't look right. And he realized I don't look like an elk. And then I put an arrow just center, just right below the chin. I put an arrow just like it's a wolf. And he took two leaps away from me and just rolled over. Holy crap. <laughs> I can't believe that just happened. That's a, that's something I would never have thought of an experience in the woods. And then after that, before I even had to like time to even register what happened, the rest of the pack came out of the brush and started sniffing that wolf. Well, at this point, everything's still under 20 yards. And I have a whole wolf pack right there. And it doesn't even know I'm there at this point. I just killed the only witness. So I'm like, so I pull back and I'm looking, I'm like, all I see right now is a neck shot. There's between two trees. Now elk, mule deer, I would never make that shot, right? It's a wolf, whatever, give it a shot, right? I shot and that arrow, again, kid you not, I don't have it on video, but I have pictures of this of the aftermath. 
it completely spined that wolf right in the neck and it just drops on top of the other one. I was like, what is happening right now? And there was two wolves left. One ran to the right, which completely disappeared in the brush. I couldn't see anymore. One ran to the left and he was in the brush and he's looking back. Same ordeal. I pulled back. I'm like, gosh, I wouldn't shoot through the brush with a bow on a deer elk, but it's a wolf. I shot and I think my arrow did deflect, but it, it was center mass. It hit him center mass. And that wolf yelped, ran right toward me ran right past me and I could see the blood just coming out of sight. And I watched that wolf tip over probably five to six times, just like it just lost consciousness, tip over, lose consciousness, tip over, just like that. And then he just disappeared in the alders. I was like, holy crap, I just can't believe that just happened. And after that day, I just realized like, I need to put in more time to figure this out because it just made me so like, it was a cool experience, but I was still really upset of the fact that we had to deal with this issue. And it was just, they were just so hard to figure out. But at this point, our friend, the one I was telling you about, he was started to figure out the wolf trapping and he was actually starting to get a good number of them, but it still wasn't doing it. It still, it wasn't keeping up to the reproductive rate because he trapped most of the pack out. And then the next year that there'd be a no whole new pack again, they just reproduce so fast. So that's where everything started, where my wheel started to turn. And I'm like, okay, I need to figure this wolf hunting out. If I'm going to have any future in this area, I was traveling. So I hunted New Mexico. I hunted Colorado. I was getting away from the wolves as much as I could. But it came to a point where like, I love this area. And I know the habitat is suitable for wildlife. And that's enough. I need to figure this out. So that's where my my hunting started and, and I started going from there. Does that make sense? How long was first wolf harvest to third wolf harvest time span wise? So from, are you talking from the first one to the three wolves? No, or? just the three wolves from the, from the eight yard shot to the last one. Oh, from like the, the range wise or? No, no. How distance or a time, time span from the first arrow to oh. the third arrow flight. Are we talking three it, minutes? Or are we talking well, it seconds? Felt, it felt like an hour, but it probably all happened under 15 seconds. I don't know. It, it was just as fast as I can knock an arrow. It was just, I killed that first one. The pack came out, knocked that arrow. And it just, I just, it was just as if you're trying to put arrows in a target as fast as you can, but everything is like on those moments, everything's slow motion to where it felt like, it felt like I had time. Thank goodness that I feel like in my younger years, I I've, I've, I used to really have struggle with my, my buck fever. But older, when I got older, I've been able to control it. And to the point to where I feel like in the moment I can do well, but it's the after the fact where it all kicks in. So that in that scenario, after everything happened, in the moment, I did really well, right? I kept my composure. I got it done. But after everything happened, I had to sit down and just hold my head and just like, I had to do that for like 15 minutes and just like, what the freak just happened? So did you and keep one of those even, wolf I couldn't even walk up to the dead wolves yet. I just like, I just had to sit there for a bit and just let my heart, like my, then my heart really came in and it was just like, it made me want to throw up. I wanted to throw up. I couldn't eat. I couldn't eat my, I was lunchtime at that point. I couldn't eat my sandwich. I lost my appetite. But then it finally said, I let it calm down. It finally settled and I, I got them, I got them all skinned that. Well, so the thing is, so the third one I never found though. I found that the two were right there, 
I never found the third one, but I know he died. I know for a fact he died. But it just, the problem was when everything happened, it was just downpour rain. And I just, I went in that alder patch and I just couldn't follow that blood trail. I'm just like, gosh. And then I, and it could have been also to him just like, I already got two dead wolves. Let's just work on them. I wish, I wish I spent a little more time finding that third one because I know he was dead. I watched him tip over multiple times. Just like, like I said, he's just losing consciousness. And anyways, but that's where it all started. And yeah, like it was, it was a very small window. Like I said, I, and you're talking about watching our videos so many times in my head, I think I know what happens in a hunt. Like I, I got an archery elk and I thought it was slow motion too, where I'm like, Oh, like I remember the elk just walking really slow right past me. Well, when I watch the video, it's like, he pops out, I shoot it and he's gone. And it's like in my head, I felt like everything happened a lot slower. I think when we're in the moment, it's things are different than, you know, that, am I making any sense at all there? A hundred percent. You're making sense. There's, there's times like we filmed a Cape Buffalo hunt and several of those encounters, Cape Buffalo specifically one. I remember he's standing there, right? And I thought he was standing there for an hour with his head in this bush. We go back to the GoPro footage and I turn the GoPro on, record. I'm As I'm moving up to go to full draw, he wins, a, turns, and snorts and runs. So it was like two seconds. But in my mind, he was standing there for three minutes. I just couldn't get get it done. So, yeah, there is a little time warp happens when, when you're going to that uber high, high vigilance, adrenaline rush type of thing that happens. This is about the only way you can you can get into that state without without tragedy. So getting a little bit back, switching gears, you've hunted Colorado, New Mexico. You've talked about you saw the elk go from pretty plentiful, pretty easy. You guys were getting on mules, horses, going back and, and getting some big bulls to where now you're really having to work to get elk. Is that part of what switched you to, to change and chase wolves was just that there was no more elk in your units? Yeah, and when I'm not just a big hunter, but a shed hunter too, I am the type of individual who really enjoys the history, having a history with an animal, right? When I travel in New Mexico and kill an elk, I think it's cool, but it's like an animal I didn't really have history with. There's something about having like where I can go into a wintering range every year and pick up multiple sheds of a big bull and then eventually capitalizing on that bull. It's like, wow, like you would... I know he smelt me multiple times. I know I've seen him multiple times. And finally, he made the mistake. There's something about that. It's, it's just very magical hunting. I don't want to say spiritual, but there, it is in some weird way. And I have a form of respect for a big bull like that. Like I, where people think hunters were just cruel and want to kill everything. Honestly, like when I kill a big bull, like I just have the utmost respect for it. I don't want to suffer. And if he outsmarts me, I applaud that bull, Mike. And, and, and I'll still talk about a bull to that day. Like there's bulls that I've, that I've had chef twos that I never found. And I, and I'm pretty sure he died of old age. And I'm just like, and I'll still talk about that bull just because I respected him so much and outsmarting me. And I think that's just the way I am when hunting, but I was losing that. We were losing that old age class and the wolves, like the biggest, the biggest times that the wolves were doing their killing was in the months of February and March and that snow crossover, that's when like those areas that I'd shed hunt where now I was picking up deadheads instead. And, and it was happening throughout the other units around me where people were sending photos of 
of elk that they've been watching. Like some of my buddies who watch elk too, elk they've watched for years. And and what and the sickest feeling of all is when a wolf pack moves in, kills one of these old these old monarchs and leaves it. Doesn't finish it. Eats a takes three bites out of the hind quarter and walk and they go off to the next one. That's the part that made me so sick to my stomach. Where that's where I felt like I was not being told the truth about wolves. Or people said that wolves only kill the sick and the weak and wolves only they they eat everything, they utilize everything. And I found that not to be true all the time. Sometimes Right, like sometimes I've watched wolves clean up a carcass really well, but I've seen them do a lot of they waste a lot too. And the other thing to mention as well is that sometimes these wolves will kill, and if they leave a carcass alone, sure they might come back a week or two later to check on it. Ravens have it cleaned up by then, so it's just a waste of an animal, in in my opinion. And and so for me. I'd rather kill a 340 bull in my area than a 380 class bull in New Mexico. That's just me. Like, or I'm even happy with a 300 inch bull. I just, I love having the history with an elk or a mule deer. And, and the moose, man, don't, don't get me started on the moose. We had incredible amount of moose. Like I, there was a day after high school, no joke. My brother and I get out of high school and we pick up, it was close to 14 moose paddles fresh. And, and in that particular area, I think we ended up picking up like 35 in just one drainage. Every drainage had a big pocket of moose. We, it was, we had a lot of moose. And the moose were, I'd say, the first to go because they're not as adaptable as elk are, I'd say. Moose just stand around in their wintering range, and it seems that the wolves just hammer them. Elk will at least try to adapt. But moose, not so much. And muleys are stubborn. And so muleys end up, I feel like our muleys, they just, they same thing. They find a pocket that they're not going to leave. And if a wolf pushes them, they like to do a big loop and come back to their brush patch. And so they end up getting killed too. That was probably the worst massacre I've ever seen was in a mule deer winning range. It was, it was disgusting. It was disgusting. That happened probably about, that was, that was shortly about 2008 when I saw that, when I was in a wintering range, mule deer. And again, I was so confused. I'm like, what killed all these deer? We didn't usually, it, was, it almost looked like a bad winter, something that a bad winter would do. But it was actually a winter we had, it was pretty mild. I'm like, what happened to all these muleys? And that's where it first started for me, at least, in realizing what these things can do. So pretty unfortunate. But I said, we've, we finally turned the tables on them, I'd say. I was just going to say, growing up in Wyoming, we used to have a really robust moose population, too. I used to be able to go up around the greater Yellowstone area where we live, and you would see six to 12 moose just driving down the highway. You'd see them all over the place. And I would agree with you. The very first thing after the introduction in 1995, the very first things to go were the moose. The moose just they disappeared off the landscape and you, you see them still, but not nearly as frequently. And of course, yeah, the mule deer, they don't need, they don't need another thing holding them down. And man, they've just been obliterated in lots of parts of Wyoming and Montana and Idaho. But to your point, I don't think that people, there's a lot of these so-called self-proclaimed ecologists out there and 
wildlife loving people. And they say, well, wolves won't just kill for no reason. Right. And I'm like, well, wolves enjoy killing and they get into a bloodlust sometimes and they'll get into a herd of elk or mule deer or whatever it might be, sheep, cows, and they just go on a killing spree because they enjoy killing things. They enjoy that pursuit. They enjoy taking down animals. And that's one of the dirty little secrets that a lot of people don't want to hear. Right. And I, I'm, I have friends in Idaho too. So has that been your experience too as well, Tom, is that people just don't want to have that conversation. And, and what was sad in our area and thankfully we have better leadership now, but it was sad that we have a, the type of environmentalists that we have in our area, my environmentalists, I think we all are environmentalists in our own way, right? Like I care about the environment, but we're talking radical environmentalists. These people don't make decisions based on feelings and not studies. And like I said, I can count these people on, on five fingers, but they were the ones actually in charge originally. They were the ones that were holding public meetings and saying that but they were they were pretty much wanting, they were begging for more wolves to be dropped in. And we were being told that we have not as many wolves as we thought we were. I remember, so remember I told you about that first wolf I saw? I was told that what I saw is inaccurate because there's no wolves in our area. I was told by a wildlife biologist at that time that we don't have wolves in our area and that what I saw was not a wolf. I'm like, okay, I'm pretty sure I know what I saw. And how, for someone like me, how am I supposed to trust you if you're telling me what I saw was inaccurate? I trust you. I don't care if you love wolves or not. If you told me what, let's look into it. Maybe there is wolves here. Then I'd gain respect for them, right? When you tell me what I'm seeing is inaccurate and there's no wolves in my area, that's telling me you're not even wanting to try. Are you even really wanting to try and or do you even care what's going on here? That that to me, as a teenager, throws a red flag. And but like I said, so I won't get my high horse. I won't get on a soapbox there. But we got better leadership now. People that care, people that understand. We don't get hit as hard as you guys in Wyoming. When I go to Wyoming, I see those signs. This is what's happening to your wolves. I see it in Wyoming. I see it in Montana. Especially Idaho is like it. Well, I'll say the southeast side of Idaho, they got the billboards just because Yellowstone's right there, right? You see those billboards right there. But Idaho, for the most part, has really taken a a strong stand on managing wolves, which I'm grateful for. I'm very grateful for. So, so not as much as you have, I would say. I, I would I would agree with most of everything you said. I would add that these these they would they would call themselves wildlife conservation, the the uber far side that you're talking about, the term I heard not very long ago is non-contributory, right? We're all conservationists in our own right. I want to conserve more deer and elk and have them intact on the landscape to take my kids hunting for sure. But I also want to have the opportunity to harvest a select few. However, I put my money where my mouth is and, and donate money to conservation that, that efforts that are actually successful. So I want to get into successful is how do you, you, it sounds like you took a a little bit of a, from that first wolf to how on the first few in went, when season started to the three that you killed. Now you're, you're focused on and you've, you've got a lot of success with killing wolves. How does, how does a guy get into that? What are some specific tips and tricks of if somebody wants to go out and, and target a wolf? 
Yeah. So the first thing I'd say is understanding the behavior of a wolf, right? And so I think that makes a good elk hunter, makes a good mule deer hunter, a hunter for anything. The first thing I had to do is like, if I'm going to kill the wolf, I need to understand the wolf. I need to really figure out what's going on. And believe it or not, actually, these environmentalist groups gave me a lot of information. So thank you. So they're sitting there, they have their studies. They, I learned the language through them too. They have, you got those centers where you're, you're listening to the language of these wolves or watching videos of Yellowstone. And, and it was a combination of that, also in a combination of experience. It was literally a four-year learning curve for me, a four-year learning curve to hunt wolves. And, and again, I was just like, for me, I try to be as much of a sponge as I can. I got other hunters in the woods, other trappers in the woods. We're, we're trying to like, this is what I did and this didn't work. So we, we started passing these ideas and I will say this, this was the pinnacle of our wolf hunting success was, so this was, I, I really don't know the date, but like I said, about four year learning curve. And then this one day I felt like we started to figure them out. We always hear wolves howling, but nothing's connecting. Well, finally we figured let's start something. We'll start with this. And start use, utilizing more, not just howling, but paracalls too. And it's no different than like, I start comparing it to like a herd bull, right? Like an elk. You get a herd bull bugling. Does that, when that bull elk is bugling, does that ever mean he's coming in? So sometimes it depends on what that herd bull is doing, right? Does he have a bunch of cows? Does he have other satellite bulls? Is he solo? I think that's where you're going with the wolves. Is this wolf with his pack? Is he the alpha male? Is he solo? Is he out hunting or is he napping, right? I've had bulls that are in their bed, they'll answer you. Or I've had bulls that are in their wallow. Or if they've got a few cows, they're going to come charging at you. And they're all three, even though they're bugling, back to the elk, they all three have a different stance attitude with whether you bugle at them or cow call at them. If they've got other cows and they're bedded, they're going to answer you trying to get you come to them. But... If they're just getting done in their wallow, they may decide to trot down that ridge. However, if they've got a few cows, they're, they're pretty much going to go wherever the cows go. So like yeah. you said with the wolves, you got to right? fi- yep. figure out what, what is that wolf doing? Why is he there? Is his whole pack right there with him? And that's where it became a little bit complex. But So this, so this one scenario is really neat because, and I'll, I thank my brother for this because he actually found the pack. But there was a big pack he found. And we started, that was another thing we started learning too, is what are the wolves weaknesses too? That they're not just like they're, what they're doing with their howls and stuff, but what is their weakness and utilize their weakness too. And so the weakness of a wolf pack, what just, just on the top of your mind, I'm just going to ask you just a very simple question. What do you think would be a weakness of a wolf? Defending his pack. Yeah. His family. Right. And so that's where we started to really, get the success that we wanted. And so we found a wolf pack. We got, we located him, got him howling. And we're like, okay, the first thing I'm going to do here is let's just, let's move in close to within their bedding area. What's the least aggressive thing to a wolf? And that would be just a simple predator call. Let's just do a little tiny predator call, see what happens. And so we predator called and seconds, not minutes, seconds, a big female came running out of the timber, came running right at us. And my brother dropped her. And they're like, we high five, got really excited. The wolves shut up. The sound of the gunshot shut up the rest of the wolves. And after 10 minutes, we did some video and stuff. And we're like, and 
again, I thank my brother for this because at that point it was like, we didn't have much time. Like it's starting to, like we had less than an hour until it gets dark. The wolves are still on the other side of the drainage. And my brother's just like gung ho. He's like, let's keep going. I'm like, Ooh, like you think like we're, we're going to be in a crap hole here. Like you get in there and it's just thick brush. We're going to, it's going to be pretty tough, but I trust you, bro. Let's do it. And like I said, I think my brother a lot on this. And so we go in there and I wanted to capture this on film. So I stayed being the camera guy. And so I filmed that first one that got killed. And as we moved in that timber, we are going back to the wolf behavior, right? We already killed one wolf. And that, that pack is missing another member of the pack, right? So as we moved in that timber, we started doing some wolf calls, some yips and stuff. And we had a wolf circling us in the timber. Really thick timber, super close. It's like timber slash brush. And we brush alder. So it's that brush above your head, but you're looking through it. And there's just a wolf. And I'm saying under 10 yards. Yes, under 10 yards. So it, they get really comfortable in that thick stuff. But we, Travis couldn't get a shot off it. He's like, he'd pull up over here, wolf would be gone. Then it'd be next to me, and he's, and he's trying to push me out of the way to shoot the wolf, and then it disappears again. We finally got him in to, like, where it's open timber, where your shooting mains are about 40, 50 yards, and there is he trotting off. He shoots, and I'm like, did you kill him? He's like, I don't know. Walk up there, big male. We high-five, like, sweet, two dead wolves. And I'm like, all right, now what? He's like, let's keep going for the pack. I'm like, okay, it's getting dark. We got to keep going. So we, we kept moving in the timber, kept going up. And at this point, the wolves still don't know what's going on. My brother killed the only two witnesses so far. And, and then we get to the third wolf. And there's another wolf sees us. It takes off running, trap shoots, misses it. That immediately after that, that wolf pack, it, it met back up with the rest of the wolves. The wolves started doing these warning howls. Like they started realizing something was wrong. And as we were moving up, this is a very weird scenario. And, but those wolves did a big circle around us and went right to where the first wolf got killed. And stood, and I never ever wanted to call it this, but I'll, I'll tell you what happened. So it sounded like a sorrowful howl. It was the weirdest thing. It was like almost like they were crying which sounds bad but it, that's what it sounded like it sounded like a sorrowful howl and then they took off i never really knew like i, I that's what i did pick but i didn't really have my facts straight to know if that's what really happened until i had talked to other wolf hunters and they said the same thing where if they kill a wolf and then they move on and then they'll hear the wolf pack do that they'll come back to the same that wolf that they killed and start doing that weird sorrowful howl. And you can tell it's so weird. It's hair standing, but there's like, and partially you're like, well, I feel bad. <laughs> but it's, it's like, they just lost a member of their pack. But then after that, they just took off and left the canyon completely. They were out of there after they figured out they were in danger. But right there, that, that was our first real scenario where we, we actually started to figure out what was going on. We're like, wow, this is, that was pretty impressive on how that worked. And, and so we just continued doing that and just figuring it out. And it just, we started getting consistent success. And mostly me, my brother, he's killed a few with me, but it's usually, it usually comes out to where either we're together or I'm solo. And that's what it ends up being anyways. But. So in comparison to, say, elk hunting, some areas, some units, I'm doing eight, 10 miles a day and trying to 
trying to sneak through the wallows and the meadows and the ridges and the bedding north timber and check if they're on the south-facing feeding spots, right? But a four-mile up, do a, a mile lateral, four-mile back. That's a typical off-trail elk hunting day. What mileage are you covering wolf hunting to, to get into these packs? Hey, it depends. Some wolves, it's eight, eight miles. Some areas, it's less depending on the amount of road traffic and stuff. I have located wolves off the road in areas where people just really don't spend a lot of time driving those type of roads. And then asking you a question, what do you think a wolf's strengths are? What makes it hard to hunt them? They've got great eyesight, great hearing, and great smelling, and they're, they're, they're super intelligent. You, you see a border collie can be trained to run sheep through a gate just on whistles, right? Or guys are training their labs to open the fridge, grab the beer, open the brewer, and bring it to them in their chair, right? So you got to look at the gray matter inside those canine skulls is about half of what a wolf is is going to have. So intelligence-wise, these wolves are, I'm not going to say they're twice as smart, but they're they're certainly smarter than any canine that we've domesticated by far. So they're going to very quickly, I've done a lot of, of trapping and, and coyote hunting, right? And I, I read a book. I want to say it was O'Gorman. It might not be. It, the Lonely Coyote, maybe. There's one part in that book where the trapper in the book talks about where you st- typically would just put one set and move on. Put a secondary lesser set, not on that salient feature, that big rock that, or that big piss post that already has wolf scat or already has coyote scat. And trapping a wolf and a coyote, I think, are... Are similar you can confirm that to me but what that book highlighted to me is it said look if you have two coyotes running down a fence line and you trap the front one if you have a second trap within about 30 yard distance there that's in a less likely spot but close enough that you can see that first spot you're going to pick up that second wolf and i saw a photo the other day a guy had 13 coyotes in about a span of 150 yards by doing that on two two winter killed deer carcasses, right? Just a string of traps down there because those coyotes didn't want to get two feet away, but they'd get 30 yards away in circle. And then while they're circling around and this coyotes losing his, his stuff, then, then you'd pick up that second coyote. So I would think their strengths more so than coyotes is they have that pack dynamic. And so they send out scouts, right? I'm always running into lone wolves, but then they quickly howl and they call in the whole reinforcement when they locate something. And they that pack mentality is makes them strong. But on top of keen sight, keen smell, intelligence, and good hearing. They're, the distance, yeah. those things can rub, run. Pat, Patrick, we talked about in the last couple podcasts, is 30, 50 miles a day. You, they can, they can that's travel. The, and, that's the, and that's the tough part, too. Because, yeah, my brother-in-law and sister, they... they hunt them and trap them in Alaska and it's the same thing they witness. Like they can cover so much ground in one day. And so that's the other thing I, that I've looked at is like, okay, so the strength is you've talked a lot of them pretty much covered it all really on what strength is, that a wolf has. And so again, it's back finding the weaknesses. What time of the year do you think wolves travel the least? Probably spring denning time. And so I utilize that a lot. Also rendezvous points. Those are areas where, sure, like wolves are going to, the one pack that I pursue, and there's still a couple left to this day, you just, it just, it's hard to really get every single wolf. People say, oh, I killed a whole pack. It's like, <laughs> yeah, I don't think I've ever done that. I've killed a lot of a pack, but there's always a couple left over. But this one particular pack, it's like, their range 
is 400 square miles. I'm not even kidding. 400 square miles. But if you actually say, where are they at 60, 70% of the time, that, that, cut, that terrain really shrinks where they're, where they're actually spending most of their time. And it's not just the spring. It's in the summer and early fall, too. Those pups are still young, and they're not moving much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Ragcast Outdoors. Again, this is part one with Tom Snyder from Stuck in the Rut TV. So we hope you'll come back next week for part number two. Thanks again for listening to the Ragcast Outdoors podcast. We hope that you've enjoyed the show. If so, please go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this podcast and subscribe, share, and give us a five-star rating, which really helps other people find the show. You can find all of our shows, recipes, giveaways, videos, and much more at ragcastoutdoors.com. While you're there, please help support the show by purchasing a Ragcast Outdoors shirt or hat. Please don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram. We also have a Ragcast community on Facebook called Ragcast Nation, and we'd love for you to join in the conversation there. And of course, please help support our sponsors who make this show possible. Thank you again to PK Lures, Bow Spider, and High Mountain Seasonings. Until next time, get out there and enjoy the outdoors.